Hello, and welcome to Richard Lehman Discusses EBM. How are you today, Richard? Thank you, Raj. Um, I think we're going to try and cover some um, very central ground, though it stretches out in every direction. So I don't know um, what we're going to end up discussing, but the title is The Tipping Point, and um, this lies at the very heart of what we do as doctors. We have to make decisions at a tremendous rate every day. And some of the decisions we make as a result of considered thought, others we make on the hoof as we have patients ill before us having to um, decide on the best course of uh, action with them and for them. So um, we can take this in all sorts of different directions and um, I'll be led a bit by you, Raj. So I'll start with this analogy of a tipping point. Uh, perhaps even on a fulcrum. And I think it's a lovely way to think about decision-making for physicians because you're really having to weigh different aspects of care and evidence, your own clinical judgment, patient outcomes and preferences, and then deciding if it's enough to change what you're doing or to act in a way, one way or another. Um, How did you come up with analogy initially and why do you like the use of a tipping point to describe decision-making? Well, it came to me during COVID, really. Um, I'd been having discussions with a statistician um, in Birmingham University, um, uh, very friendly, back and forth about uh, what actually constitutes proof of efficacy. So that was in a very um, rarefied take your time about its academic uh, environment. Then all of a sudden in COVID, people had to make decisions very quickly. Politicians had to make decisions. Clinicians had to make decisions. And some of the decisions they were making had no obvious logic behind them. Others did. Some seemed very right and others seemed very wrong. So um, I was then forced to think about Um, where the decision points lay and how people actually thought about them. Uh, And the classic example, I suppose, was whether um, to impose lockdowns or not, and also whether to impose masks on the population. And to me, from the point of view of um, saving lives, in the acute situation, it seemed obvious that both were needed. Um, but many people in the EBM community said, no, we need proof that these things actually work. Well, I, I, I uh, bridled at that because clearly the time that proof would be uh, would, would need uh, simply wasn't there in face of an epidemic, which was Uh, pandemic, which was overwhelming hospital facilities um, and leading to many, many deaths. So at that point, I think I um, I started thinking about what what the criteria for adoption were. But this was in a public health situation where EBM played a part. Uh, We could discuss that sort of thing, or we could discuss the tipping points that we use as clinicians to determine the treatments that we give to patients who present themselves randomly in front of us. I think that's a great suggestion. And there are challenges. So I think this is a good starting point because we really are discussing tipping points for decisions for patients in clinical settings. 
and you have to be mindful that when we create these rules or we think about this, they don't always extrapolate to population health, to public health. Um, some aspects do, some aspects don't. So we have to be careful in that regard and understand the limitations of what we're discussing. Yeah, um, but <clears throat> clinical behavior is to some extent individual behavior and to some extent it's mass behavior. And um, another thing that struck me in this was the way that fashions change in medicine and the way that these so-called tipping points aren't necessarily obvious. Um, let's consider tonsillectomy uh, as um, an example of this. Uh, we have a, a kid whose parents have brought him in repeatedly for what looked like horrible purulent episodes of tonsillitis with great big tonsils and they ask um, why haven't you sent him to have his tonsils out doctor uh, and you say well um, uh, the evidence seems to show that uh, most kids grow out of this and if we um, just give it a little bit more time, he'll he'll get better um, and won't won't be having these episodes every every few months. Um, and they then come back and say, well, I had my tonsils out, and my mum says I was so much better after that. Blah blah. And then you think about all the different um, considerations here, putting a kid through an operation that they may not need. On the other hand, sleep apnea can be caused by big tonsils in kids, and that's quite difficult to diagnose. Uh, and let's say he has had four um, rather horrible episodes in the last three years, and he's had to miss school and so on. So the easiest thing for you then is to pass him on to the um, ENT, otorhino, rhino, whatever you call it in the States, um, and um, <clears throat> make and let them decide. In fact, this decision has been um, debated now for pretty well exactly 100 years. And um, this was, um, <laughs> it, it came about in a very interesting way, which I could digress into. Um, but um, uh, I, perhaps I'll just leave it hanging as an example at the moment. I can do my digression later if you like. So, so where is the tipping point here? Yeah, For so you as a doctor in, in, in consultation with a parent. So I'm, when I'm weighing the tipping point, on the one hand, I have perhaps the benefits of doing something like this and the evidence that might support it, along with the patient's perspective and their belief in potential benefit. And then I weigh this on the other side, as you point out, about the potential harms and the harms being, you know, you may have surgery, you may have complications from that. Um, and then there's degrees of uncertainty here. And uncertainty is a very difficult thing to assess. You you have statistical uncertainty, so like, you know, what are the confidence intervals and so on of, of our data and how strong it is. Um, you have uncertainty regarding, you know, the complexity of measuring different outcomes. Like in time, it'll get better, but is time enough? And how much is the patient and the parent suffering in that amount? And then just the ambiguity sometimes of like, how do you value what the patient's thinking versus our sense of like, well, in time it gets better, but I'm not the parent staying up all night you know, with the kid every day for how many days or months a year. 
So that's really, really tough. Um, the first thing I always like to begin with is, you know, just where is the the evidence and the strength or weight of evidence? Because, you know, if you have a decision point like this, but there's like eight or nine RCTs, there's lovely meta-analysis, there's guidelines that say unambiguously, hey, this is the way to do it, that you just do not need to do a tonsillectomy unless you have clear evidence of sleep apnea, then, you know, I, I would feel pretty more comfortable with that. And it would take a lot of evidence on the other side to weigh against that if I'm tipping it. On the other hand, if that evidence base is not that strong and there's some studies, but we don't know, and that makes it hard because maybe another study comes out next year, which tips that balance very easily. You know, I'm much more sensitive to that. Um, then it's a, then it's a lot harder. And then I think in those circumstances, certainly the shared decision-making, the patient preferences come into play. And the nice thing about being a primary care doctor sometimes I can say, go talk to the ENT doctor so you're more informed, and then we can make a decision together. So, you know, I buy myself a little bit of time and space by doing that referral. Oh, you do it too. Excellent. <laughs> well, the, the back story is that um, there was a, <clears throat> uh, a doctor in um, England called J. Allison Glover. Why he called himself that? <clears throat> nobody knows because it made everyone think he was he was a female um whereas he was playing john allison um when he was born anyway um he had a good career in the first world war he he was a fantastic sniper and uh, <clears throat> he shot hundreds of germans um but when he when he came off the field he um, he became a, a public a doctor of a kind that doesn't exist any longer. That was a district medical officer uh, who was responsible for the health of children. And he noticed that um, as he moved from one district in London to another, the rates of tonsillectomy varied incredibly. In one um, district, I think it was Hounslow, pretty well every child had a tonsillectomy before the age of eight. Uh, and in a neighbouring one, <clears throat> the, it was about 25%. So he started doing some studies, um, and one of them consisted of getting children examined by doctors, yourself, myself, an ENT doctor, uh, as to whether they needed their tonsils removing. By the time they'd seen three doctors, every child had been adjudged as needing to have their tonsils out. So he, <laughs> he concluded that this was simply a social habit that um, uh, the doctors uh, indulged in um, uh, under expectation that they were going to do something. Um, and then he had the opportunity when... Um, a group of Spanish children from the Basque country, um, no, it, they, they weren't Spanish, they were Basques, which is a separate nation, but they had come under attack from the Spanish and um, the children were evacuated to Britain and none of them had had tonsillectomies because tonsillectomy was unknown in the Basque region that lies between France and Spain. And so he had the opportunity to examine their health in consequence of that. And it seemed to have no effect whatsoever. Um, so um, even before the Second World War, it was fairly well established that tonsillectomy was a, a procedure of little or no benefit to most of the kids undergoing it. And yet it's still a popular operation. 
So there we have a fulcrum that lasts 100 years. It's like having a, a, a whole kitchen table as, as, as the tipping point. And, um, you know, it, it never really ends. You, can, you put another table at the end and postpone the decision. So that's um, a, a, an example of a very spread out fulcrum that didn't really work. On the other hand, you, you have a very clear fulcrum um, where evidence becomes overwhelming almost before it's out. Um, and I suppose that is uh, typically penicillin. Do you give it for an infection or not um, after 1943? And everybody wanted it, whether it would cure them or not, because it was so obviously beneficial. But there are plenty of other examples. And um, the one that we must strive earnestly to avoid is stenting. Why, why were stents adopted in the first place? And secondly, um, why did drug-eluting stents take over from bare metal stents? And if you look at that story, you'll find that there's actually no evidence whatsoever really worth the name. Um, but it just appealed to people a great deal, this idea that, that you had a block pipe, you'd put a, a tube in it to open it up, and it had to be better for that tube to be exuding some substance that would theoretically prevent it from clotting. So there we have it. And um, uh, those tipping points were very, uh, very hard to look back on with um, any great belief in rationale. Anyway, I've, I've gone on for long yeah. enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say in defense of our ENT and cardiology uh, colleagues that you know, every patient's different and there are sometimes indications where evidence is supportive for doing these things. Um, but on a mass scale, sometimes we wonder at the volume and the variation of practice. And it lends this idea that when you don't have overwhelming evidence to say a decision should be one way, there's a lot more discretion and judgment. And there, there is this question of then what tips us to go one way or the next? And how much of that is based on how we trained as clinicians or personal bias? Or maybe it's not even us. Maybe there are some environmental, local, geographic factors in play that just make things different for the patients in front of us. Yeah, I think we're talking here about um, mass psychology and personal psychology and the get out clause, which is always the clinician's judgment, which you've just mentioned, um, which gives us a wide um, uh, option to do different things. And when Jack Wenberg looked at this in the 1970s, he found that much of this was supply-driven demand, that um, patient, uh, that doctors like to fill their clinics um, and they like to add diagnoses um, if their clinics aren't full. And uh, this has been very well um, written up uh, in countless papers from Dartmouth College in particular by him and by his associates. And um, maps have been created, both of the U.S. and the U.S., uh, both of the U.K. and the U.S.A. of, of different rates that vary enormously. Um, and I think we perhaps can move from that more into the EBM uh, realm of um, how tipping points should be decided. Um, as, as opposed to um, what actually happens out there. Uh, and this leads us into statistical considerations, which 
you're probably better um, uh, qualified to talk about than I am. Um, yes. yes. So, so this is a good transition because we've kind of superficially discussed how evidence and data can weigh, you know, the tipping point of decisions. And so if we really are going to dive into EBM, what is it about how we interpret the literature and how we create inferences from multiple trials? How, how do we really determine that? And, you know, the I think us, uh, on, a, on a very simple level, sometimes we'll look at a trial and be like, well, this trial is, is positive, it shows this treatment works, or this trial is negative, it shows that it doesn't work. And then, you, you know, you dust your hands and you're done with it. Uh, but the reality is actually more nuanced than that. And it, it turns out when you look at trials um, that, yes, sometimes trials can show that something works, or yes, sometimes trials can definitively show that perhaps it, it's not helpful against a certain threshold, but that a lot of trials are actually inconclusive, uh, that they don't really tell us if it works or it doesn't work. And that's because um, it's actually not that simple to say something works. We actually have to kind of create a, mo a model of what we think is a threshold of efficacy or an effect size of how treatment works. Um, and there were two papers that came out in June of 2023 that I think kind of spearheaded this um, discussion. One was a, a, a great paper in JAMA titled Evidence of Lack of Treatment Efficacy Derived from Statistically Non-Significant Results of Randomized Controlled Clinical Trials uh, by Thomas Herneger et al. I hope I'm saying that correct. And then another one later in June um, was a trial. It's called a reanalysis of 150 women's health trials to investigate how Bayesian approach may offer solutions to the misinterpretation of statistical findings. This was published in uh, BJOG and author of K. Hemming et al. And so what both of these papers tried to do is they tried to look at a large number of papers that, you know, presumably you know, had statistically non-significant results and then try to figure out how to interpret them. Um, and that's kind of what led to this next point of like, how do we how do we interpret these negative studies? What are the approaches they discuss? And how do we consider them in the tipping point of our decisions? Yes, I think that's, um, that those are papers which uh, I sent you and, and um, I was very interested in, but as I was considering them, I thought maybe our listeners might want to step back at a stage and uh, put this in the context of trials generally. Um, and that came to me by considering the difference between the typical trial uh, of an intervention which has been tried out, um, say a drug that's been tried out on animals and then been tried in a phase two trial and then it comes to a phase three. Um, and we, we're all very familiar with that pattern. But it was broken during the COVID period because people were proposing, under the pressure of the circumstance, to um, use interventions which seemed to have no rationale whatsoever. And um, so the first tipping point is when do you consider a drug has reached the point where it can reasonably be tested on human beings. What are your criteria for that? Uh, and I think they vary enormously. And that's something that EBM perhaps hasn't looked at as much as it could have. Uh, if we look at the uh, substances that were trialed for, for COVID, acute COVID, um, 
we can go for the for the recovery list or we can just go from our own memory but you of course the ones that stand out are chloroquine um, and um, the horse pills ivermectin um, and they were just suggested by populists basically um, and the same applies in some cases to trials of herbal therapies um, and non-orthodox therapies, which are just plucked out of the air, just happen to have been used. Um, and so as a Bayesian, you would think maybe we should take a more skeptical view to the possible efficacy of these things and, um, and maybe simply rule them out from testing until we've tested a whole lot of more plausible um, treatments. Uh, um, that's a point that I don't want to labor, but um, I, I, yeah. I think it's a good starting point because the, really the first question to ask is like, why are we using clinical trials, randomized control trials as our gold standard for tipping our decisions one way or the other? And do we need it for all decisions? Um, fundamentally in medicine, if you take the assumption that biological symptoms are too complex to have valid predictions of harms and benefits. And this is important because I don't know if giving a drug like thylidomide might cause horrible harms that's very difficult to predict. That lack of prediction means that I need to take a precautionary principle and take an approach using clinical trials, using these phases of one, two, three of animals and so on to ensure safety and to kind of get a sense of do these drugs work? What are their adverse effects? What are their benefits? And appreciating that like, it's really hard in biologic systems to establish cause and effect relationships. And that at the core is kind of why you need clinical trials, that these effect sizes can be very small, they're unpredictable, and clinical trials are just kind of the best way to have a clean assessment. Then the flip side of that is that not all medical interventions are necessarily drugs or interventions in biological settings. I mean, wearing a mask is just stopping pathogens from leaving your mouth and going into the air around you. And if you believe that, yes, certain respiratory viruses are spread by aerosols, then you can have predictive models with mass wearing potential benefits and understanding, okay, these harms are limited to make predictions and offer kind of a benefit harm risk that doesn't necessarily need a clinical trial. Um, I can't say that about drug eluding stents. Um, then there are some middle grounds, like what if we leverage existing drugs, like you have hydroxychloroquine. So in theory, we kind of have a sense of what the harms are because we've been giving this drug for some indications. And now we think maybe it might be efficacious for COVID. And some people might suggest it, but then we're relying on observational data. We give it to some patients, not others. They seem to help. But again, the challenge comes back to that these effects are going to be small. And a poor clinical trial design or observations can be confounded. There can be bias. There can be errors in judgment. And so we may feel confident that it's working. But until we have that clinical trial, we don't know if our judgment may be mistaken simply by the way things are being selected. And so there are a lot of nuance about when we decide what we're going to do. But at its core, if you're doing biological symptoms, you're doing drugs, human devices, and so on, I think it makes sense to stick with that RCT is your gold standard. And if you don't want to use it, having a nuanced argument might make sense, especially in urgent settings with pandemics. Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, perfectly summarized. Um, and I think um, possibly a mistake I've made is to generalize too much from the recovery series of trials in COVID because they are so atypical. Um, the, because they they bypass the usual 
system which I described and you repeated just then. Well, uh, if, yeah. I was going to say, well, actually, recovery is the perfect transition here because recovery was designed as an adaptive trial. And what they said was, is that, you know, we can take something like hydroxychloroquine and we can keep studying it, keep studying it, keep studying it, looking at 1,000, 10,000, 100,000. And someone could argue, well, you still need to look at more patients. There's a potential benefit there. You just need to keep studying it until you find it. And what they said was that, you know, we're going to do a cutoff at some point after 10 or 20,000 patients. If we don't see a benefit, we're just going to say, even if there's an effect, it's too small to be a benefit. It's going to be a trivial effect. So we're not just running after clinical significance. We're setting a threshold and saying, if we can get a benefit that's big enough, great. And if it's smaller than this threshold, we're saying it's too trivial and not worth continuing to study. Um, and that is a huge important part of how we have to interpret all clinical trials. That at some point, no statistician can tell us how to interpret a trial. We have to make that clinical judgment of like, is this study able to exclude an effect size of minimal clinical difference? We think that's important. And if it does, great. And if it can't, is it inconclusive? Do we need to study more? Yeah, I think this, the, and, and that applies to stopping rules generally for trials. Um, and that's a statistical uh, area that we don't need to go into detail with. But I think the, um, the list for recovery um, in acute COVID is, is quite instructive because uh, it shows how some drugs with plausible um, uh, presumptions of benefit actually prove not to have any benefit. One of mm -hmm. those is aspirin because um, thrombo thrombotic complications in acute COVID uh, and in fact in longer term COVID are very common and um, an antiplatelet drug like that would seem an obvious place. And because recovery was so big and so quick it was rapidly found that that did not apply. Uh, and similarly with azithromycin, you would think that almost certainly some of the deaths from acute COVID were caused by bacterial superinfection. And in fact, um, if I looked at those studies as they were appearing and quite a few of them did show a bacterial superinfection, but azithromycin proved to have no mortality benefit at all. And that was quick and people were using it and people continued long after, in fact, to use cocktails of antibiotics because if we see a patient dying of a chest infection automatically, we want to put in some antibiotics just in case. Um, colchicine was a, a dubious example. Convalescent plasma, I thought, would absolutely work because it had to, you know, why, <laughs> why should it not work? You know, if you're giving these people someone else's antibodies, it was bound to work. No, it didn't work at all. Um, uh, and famously, with convalescent plasma in the U.S., we paid and gave it to 100,000 patients without doing patients, 100,000 without doing RCT, and recovery just did RCT in 10,000 and showed it didn't work. Uh, and it was quite embarrassing because I don't know what we were doing in the States, giving it to so many people and not studying it properly. Yeah. yeah. So the tipping point there was 10,000 patients. Uh, futility, end of story. I mean, that's beautiful. Uh, if only all that, all research was that simple. Um, and dexamethasone, of course, which was 
given in varying doses or alternative uh, prednisone and so forth, um, showed a, a, a very considerable benefit when given to um, patients at a certain stage of, and severity of the illness. And, and that led to further studies to try and refine our assessments of dosage and timing. Um, and then there were a whole lot more. Um, the things that I didn't realize had been tried out like tocilizumab and empagliflozin even. Um, the SGLT2s are magical, but they're not that magical. <laughs> well, this is it. And uh, and Regeneron's monoclonal antibody combo, which, you know, is beginning to become the verge on black box um, magic. But uh, this particular black box magic didn't work either. So um, those were things that typically would have strung out for five years while Regeneron were advertising their, their product and doing their own trials and so on. But because it was an, an, a world health emergency, this stuff got done quickly and the way it should be. So um, I think recovery, as we said in a very much earlier episode, is an example of how it, it all should work in an ideal world. <laughs> Yeah, so um, those are some examples of, of tipping points. Um, and um, perhaps the, the, the final one that we could come to is de-adoption. At what point do you decide in normal peacetime, as it were, non-pandemic situations when to give up something as futile we've talked about tonsillectomy already which is a borderline case can you think of other things where i, I can so i'll begin by by the saying that there are there are a couple of caveats when tipping points can be difficult i think when there's such a strong weight of evidence tipping it in favor or against it you know reversing it or shifting that tipping point it's going to take a lot of weight and effort on the other side. So maybe if I see a few studies or a few comments or or data points suggesting something that's counter to the existing practice, I'll be mindful of it. But that that existing weight is so heavy, it, it may not push as much. It's more challenging when you have areas where there's like true equipoise, right? Where where this is a consensus practice, but the data is honestly not that great. You know, the data against it can also be argued. And then if, if a new study comes out, a new trial comes out that just shifts that balance a bit, it makes it a lot harder for us. And then maybe we might consider changing it. Or if you have like a really good, well done randomized control trial that kind of shifts our consensus approach to how we think about it, um, you could see a reverse or a change in practice. Um, de-adoption uh, is a little bit more nuanced than just that because de-adoption sometimes gets involved this not in the weight of things but in the complexity of it a lot of the tipping point isn't necessarily the data a lot of the tipping point especially in elderly patients is you know what is quality of life and how much survival and gains are you getting from these interventions yes i know stands are helpful but should we de-adopt it in a patient who's old enough where they don't want to take pills and really their quality of life is more important to them than however much extra survival benefit they get and that's that's a lot tougher, and that takes a little bit more conversation. Yeah, I think that's a very good um, <clears throat> dissection of the problem. Uh, as uh, in individual patients, those tipping points um, of de-adoption um, are, are very much the, the essence of good geriatric care. 
Um, in the wider field, though, I'm thinking of medical practices, which used to be universal and um, then fell out of fashion either very quickly or more gradually. Um, um, and there have been several of those in my lifetime. Can you think oh. of one? Well, one at the beginning of mine was the de-adoption of HRT, hormone replacement therapy. We still use it, of course, in women with severe symptoms of hot flashes. But I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, it is used much more commonly with some people even suggesting giving cardiovascular benefit. And then um, in the early 2000s, there was a quick reversal. And I started beginning my training. We were taking many women off of this medication that they had been given before. Um, so that was quite a change. Um, and then, of course, uh, Screening guidelines are always changing. You know, there was a time when women were getting PAPs every year and every three years, now maybe every five years. And that's certainly a change from norms uh, as many of these women had experienced in their past. Yeah, but I'm, I'm thinking uh, over a longer period, but not that much longer. Um, things like uh, the most common operation when I went into practice in the 1970s and then the 80s was uh, dilatation curatage, uh, DNC. I think that was common in the States as well, wasn't it? It's, it still is, but yes. It is, yeah. because it was completely de-adopted uh, in, in the UK. Over, you know, it was it was the absolute bedrock of gynecology. Um, every gyne list when I was a, a junior doctor had maybe twenty D's and C's before before or after any, any other procedures, and um, uh, then uh, within a two or three years, uh, it, it it was no longer being done. Um, colposcopy took over to some extent. But the idea that you just scrape away the problem um, disappeared very quickly. The same applied actually to the um, procedures for washing our knees. I don't know if you still do them a lot in the States, but um, in, in the UK, perhaps because we have a more directive system, Orthopedic surgeons were simply told not to do them any longer because <laughs> all this debris gunk that they were getting out of the knees um, didn't make any difference at all to the, the outcomes of patients. Or well, so, so the trials seem to show. I, I'm not a, a great expert on that. And a lot of me, medial meniscectomies and so forth, like, likewise, and shoulder decompressions, all these things which made big money for orthopedic surgeons disappeared from um, NHS practice, though they continued a bit longer in private practice. It's I, I feel a bit of empathy for my surgical colleagues because I appreciate sometimes you know, it may seem harder to do things like randomized control control trials and clinical trials as opposed to doing it with drugs and vaccines, but it's still really important. And I think this is a great example of where, you know, there's a lot of unresolved equipoise for many surgical procedures. And then if you start having strong data, uh, it's not surprising that what may seem common um, may become reversed or may get shifted in another direction. Um, and I think it, it speaks to the need to, to just um, have better ways of assessing evidence for a lot of things that we're doing in many of these fields. Yes, and um, 
there's a whole science so-called around this called uh, adoption science, isn't there? And um, you sometimes wonder whether you really want things adopted all that much, all that quickly, uh, because a tipping point may come along where you suddenly realise that uh, you know, what you were encouraging should actually yeah. be discouraged. Um, oh, I, but, um, I, I feel like... Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I think one of the nice things about being a primary care physician is that we have no skin in the game about which way to go, or we haven't spent years of our life training to do one thing. You know, if things shift, then I, I think we're usually quite okay shifting with them. Um, and that allows us sometimes to be perhaps the most evidence-based of all the specialties. Hooray, let's end on that positive <laughs> note, uh, Raj. Uh, I hope you're right. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Okay, thank you.